0: Explore the history, relationships, expertise, and data that go into ensuring Stein growers get maximum yield potential. This is the Stein Seedcast. Here's your host,
1: David Thompson. Hello, and welcome to the Stein Seedcast. I'm your host, David Thompson, National Marketing and Sales Director for Stein Seed Company. We've got another great episode lined up with special guests expert insights and discussion on everything you need to know about maximizing yield potential. On today's episode, our special guest is John Baranek, meteorologist with DTN. Welcome to the show, John. Hey, thanks for having me on, David. So John graduated from Iowa State University with a Bachelor of Science degree in meteorology and also has a minor in agronomy, and he has been a meteorologist with DTN since 2011. John uses his forecasts to highlight the impacts on various industries and helps customers make important business decisions. His comments have been received by clients in the aviation, transportation, energy, and agriculture industries worldwide, and he works out of the Burnsville, Minnesota office. We look forward to catching up with John about his background, the season that was, and his outlook for the 2023 season. So, John, to get us started, I wonder if you could give us a little bit of background about yourself and and your career path.
0: Yeah. So, uh, David, you mentioned I I got a a degree in meteorology from Iowa State with a minor in agronomy. I actually stayed uh, a couple of years after that to do some field studies there for uh, a couple of professors of mine, uh, uh, doing some field projects with uh, corn pollination transport and stuff like that. So it was kind of interesting. I finally got uh, a job up here uh, with DTN in 2011, and um, have been kind of started off kind of doing all sorts of stuff. I wasn't able to really use my agronomy background for a little bit, but uh, finally an opportunity opened up a a few years ago to kind of finally start getting uh, involved with this a little bit more, um, professionally at least. Uh, I've been doing all sorts of things from uh, just routine weather forecasts to uh, morning weather videos, uh, going out to shows, speaking on... Um, uh, radio stations uh, across the, the the country here really just trying to help people figure out you know what's coming up with the weather how that might how that information might be useful to use in your um, in your operations and uh, what kind of uh, insights it might provide into to helping you either maximize um, your time or your energy or your focus uh, as as we as we go through uh, a season so. On top of that, some of the other things that just kind of to to pop up, usually during the winter time here, because, you know, not a whole lot of operations going on, but, you know, you, you still have planning going on. And so I get a little bit involved with that as well.
1: All right, perfect. You know, um, yeah. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of industries where weather is is a big, big factor, and uh, probably none of them more so than than agriculture. So uh, I'm sure that 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 the work you do is is important uh, to DTN and to to uh, our ag audience uh, all all throughout the United States and and around the world. So. Um, I guess to start things off, let's talk about the 2022 growing season. Um, you know, as it relates to the corn growing part of, of our country here in North America, um, what, what are the takeaways? What are the main stories uh, from that part of the world?
0: Yeah, it was our second year of La Nina in a row. And, um, you know, it was almost, and not quite, because no two years are the same, but, you know, pretty similar to 2021 as well. We had uh, La Nina-driven weather pattern here across uh, North America, and it it really uh, um, lent itself into some pretty extreme heat, uh, especially here across the U.S. and the Corn Belt um, and overall, especially on the western half, uh, some pretty dry conditions. So 2021 was definitely that way. Uh, we saw some major drought in the Dakotas. Uh, 2022 was more kind of south, southern central plains, so Nebraska south, where it had, had the worst of it last year. But it was basically you know, a dry and hot western half of the Corn Belt and a, a milder and, and wetter eastern half of the Corn Belt, kind of how, how it shaped up last year. Um, and that's just typical of a La Nina summer. So um, it is almost a, a textbook case in the weather patterns that we expected to see. Um, so we, we are well aware of, of, of the potential of what was going to come last year, and uh, hopefully some uh, folks uh, got out of it with not so bad conditions. I've I heard anywhere from um, just, you know, not even able to make a crop out there in uh, like say Nebraska and Kansas um, to even Eastern parts of the, of the corn belt where they ended up with some better precipitation and not so hot conditions still missing out on a whole lot of, uh, of of the precipitation events um, or completely going the other direction and getting flooded out there as well. So uh, we had, we had kind of a, a wild array of, of weather last year, but you know, it typically pointed itself to a hot and dry West and a, cooler and and wetter east.
1: So you mentioned like second year of uh, this La Nina uh, weather pattern. Is that typical for those things to last, you know, across two years or or more? Or was that kind of unexpected?
0: Yeah, La Nina ends up being usually a multi-year event. Um, You know, uh, it started actually back in fall of 2020, so um, and we haven't really gotten out of it since then. So this is the third straight winter uh, being under Niña conditions, and you know you might expect three straight years, uh, three straight winters to to be kind of a, an unusual thing to happen. Maybe it's unprecedented, but it's it's really not. We actually had one in the late 90s, early 2000s, which was three straight La Nina's. Uh, we had another event back in the mid 70s that was three straight La Nina's. And, um, you know, we don't have great data for it because we didn't have satellites back then, but it looks like the mid-50s also had kind of three straight La Ninas. So it seems to be on this cycle of every 20 to 25 years uh, where we end up um, with a, a stretch of three straight La Ninas. So, um, you, know, if, you know, that kind of leads into the question then, okay, so if that, you know, 2045, 2050, are we going to hit another stretch of three straight La Ninas? I don't know. Our records are pretty short. But if we do end up with three straight line unions, we shouldn't be surprised there. Um, So, those of us who are still around uh, that far into the future might might be looking at this again.
1: So, so, and I guess that leads into a conversation about you know uh, short term future, meaning 2023. So, if uh, the common uh, ideas that these things kind of kind of take three years to cycle through, um, then is your expectation that as we look to the 2023 growing season, um, we at least have to be expecting this trend to continue?
0: For the next couple of months, yes. So um, we've kind of hit an important threshold here in the Pacific Ocean uh, where temperatures are starting to, to rise, uh, getting closer to back where they should be. Uh, for this time of year. So La Nina is, is basically, manifests itself as colder than average temperatures in the tropical Pacific Ocean. And we've basically been there uh, since uh, late 2020, as I mentioned. We're finally starting to see that kind of ease its way out. Uh, we're getting back to normal um, for, uh, for now. Um, and forecast here, um, basically any long-range climate model you look at has us getting into either on the warm side of neutral or into an El Nino uh, sometime this summer or early fall. Um, uh, it's kind of interesting to see every single model take that path. Usually there's some pretty good spread, so um, we can have pretty good confidence here that we're finally getting out of La Nini conditions and headed towards El Nino, and that's going to change our weather pattern dramatically here as we move forward. Um, it the, the thing about it, though, is uh, these things are very slow processes. So, um, you know, it, the energy that comes out of the, the Pacific Ocean there, the, the increased potential we have, uh, takes some time for the atmosphere to respond to it. So uh, we're still going to be in kind of what we would expect for La Nina or, say, the last couple of springs um, where we had some cooler temperatures here across the north-central U.S., uh, some wetter conditions across the Ohio Valley, Um, That should be kind of expected here through March and April, Um, but after that, uh, as we get more deeper into these neutral conditions, as we head towards El Niño, you know, when we look back in the past at some similar years where we're coming out of La Niña and we go into an El Niño, what happens during those years? Um, Usually the spring is kind of a mixed bag, but it tends to end up looking like uh, a La Niña, so we, we, we stay warmer for a lot of the uh, of the southern states, drier there in the southern southwestern plains. Um, uh, if anybody cares about the winter wheat crop down there, I got planted in a dust in the fall. Um, it doesn't look like it's going to have some very good conditions here over the next couple of months to, to really make a good crop. Um, so that's unfortunate for them there. But as, as we get into the summertime, uh, usually what happens is we end up at least towards what I would call normal Summer weather, so over the last couple of years when we've been kind of dominated by La Nina, uh, we've had fewer thunderstorm events, uh, these large complexes that kind of develop out in the plains and really build across the Midwest and and push through the, the east coast. We didn't see a whole heck of a lot of them the last couple of summers. Um, this year though, I think you know as, as we get kind of away from La Niña-driven uh, conditions, and, and we get more towards neutral or even El Niño. We should see a lot more of these thunderstorm clusters. So, we, um, you know, severe weather is always a, a hard thing to predict because there's a lot of things that go into it. But uh, severe weather has kind of been lower than average um, uh, during the summertime across the the Corn Belt. I think we get a little bit more of that going on. Um, but you know, when uh, when you look at what's quote, normal for um, thunderstorms and and precipitation across the the Corn Belt. There's always some winners and losers with that, unfortunately. So there's some areas that end up pretty good. There's some areas that don't. And it's just really a matter of where these thunderstorm clusters develop, where they go over. Um, uh, Sometimes areas will get hit by several of them, multiples of them, and they end up with heavier than normal precipitation. Some areas get left out. Um, and that's really something that, if you look at some of these these years where we're coming out of La Niña and going into El Niño, um, that it's, it's it's kind of a mixed bag. You, you can't really see um, uh, which areas are more likely to get hit by these thunderstorm complexes, which areas are more likely to get missed. Uh, one thing that's pretty typical, though, and uh, uh, is to, to have cooler than normal temperatures across uh the corn belt so you can think of if, we, if if we get normal precipitation patterns and we have cooler conditions so we don't have as much heat stress as we've had especially the last couple of years um that usually we end up with a pretty good crop so uh you know a lot of things have changed in the the last even 20-25 years since our last uh triple triple la nina where uh, genetics and other practices and stuff kind of help mitigate the, the effects of that anyway, but uh, you know, with I, I would say with with the improved outlook here for, for more quote again normal conditions during the summer, I think a lot of areas here that have been kind of um, kind of beat down the last couple of summers, especially the Western Corn Belt, um, have a little bit better chance to to participate in the total production this year than they did in the past couple.
1: Well, and and you just brought up a point. One of the things that we hear a lot from uh, growers is that, uh, you know, genetics, seed genetics today are... Better able to withstand some of those hardships than maybe what they were, you know, twenty or even, you know, ten years ago. Um, a lot of growers we talked to in the western part of the Corn Belt this year said, you know, I, I would have hoped for better conditions, but at the end of the day, I'm surprised at the crop I got, um, you know, because of lack of moisture or heat stress and all the things that, that Mother Nature threw at it. Um, so at least uh, farming practices. Uh, coupled with, you know, again, C, improvement sea genetics, at least, are trying to help help uh, them weather the storm, literally and figuratively, I suppose. <laughs> um, so, sounds to me like what you're saying is, you know, probably for a lot of the uh, corn belt, uh, they should probably expect, based on models, to uh, look at a spring season that's maybe going to be similar to what they've seen the last year or two. Is Is that fair to say?
0: I think that's pretty fair. And, uh, you know, we had a lot of issues last year um, with delayed plantings. Um, If you're in the eastern Corn Belt, it was because you were too cool and wet. Uh, If you're in the western Corn Belt, it was mostly in um, North Dakota where they got a couple of really strong blizzards and had all sorts of flooding issues. And then the cold kind of just lingered around through April. Uh, That didn't really help them melt all that off. Um, So I think we're going to have some similar issues uh, this year with planting, and that's that's really my biggest concern here. Um, as as we go into uh, the 2023 season, is can we get the, the, the crop planted in in a, in a in the normal time? Both you know you know to to help us out with the insurance issues there, uh, to capture as much sun as we can to, to produce uh, some some good yield potential. Um, that, that that's my biggest concern. So uh, yeah. as you, if you look at a, a drought monitor map. Uh, What you'll notice is east of the the Mississippi River, there's almost no drought left, um, which is actually kind of surprising. Uh, We had it kind of cropping back up last fall, and usually during the the, the winter season, you don't get a whole lot of precipitation. But it's been really, really active, really un-La Nina-like across the country here over the the winter season. But that's really led to some pretty good soil moisture, at least top soil moisture, um, in the uh, eastern half of the Corn Belt. For the West, we still have drought out there, um, and even a, a normal weather pattern um, can, you know, have have issues there uh, if, if drought is you know still in place. So, um, you know, if you look at uh, uh, snowpack as well, um, we, we kind of had some pretty good precipitation, pretty good snowpack in all the way up through December across. Uh, the upper Midwest, Minnesota, Wisconsin, the Dakotas. Um, but a lot of that's melted off with some, uh, some warmer temperatures the last uh, several weeks. And so uh, we're, we don't have a whole lot of snowpack left to melt off. And so, um, you know, the ground's still frozen, though. So a lot of that's just kind of moving off into the rivers. So we're going to need a little bit more um, precipitation out in the west here to have a, a decent spring. Uh, the, the the issue there is, is, does this cold linger? So uh, we've kind of escaped a lot of the Arctic blasts. Uh, most of them have been pretty short uh, up here in the in the western half of the Corn Belt. Um, uh, but everything kind of points to us kind of having a lot more of those Arctic um Uh, air masses moving through over the next couple of months. If they linger in past mid-April, and we continue to see some of those colder temperatures, I'm sure it'll uh, force some people who love to plant early, capture all that sunlight, kind of push them back a little bit further into May. Um, uh, so that they don't have to worry about frost potential or something like that. So, like um, I've kind of bounced around here a lot, but just there's there's a lot of things kind of going around uh, the corn belt, whether you're in the eastern half or in the western half, um, that that might be some issues there for you when you when you go to plant this spring.
1: Well, and you brought up a good point when it comes to temperature. Um, you know, one of the things I think through a lot of the Corn Belt, uh, we've, we find the tendency of the trend toward pushing for earlier planting. Uh, and whenever you do that, you're you're up against you know, Mother Nature from a temperature standpoint. What's suitable for uh, soil temp, and and like you said, frost, and and all of those things. So, um, sounds like there's at least based on modeling. There's there's of course there's always risk of of you know cold spring uh, and frost and so forth. But uh, in this case, we've got certain support to say, well, based on modeling. Uh, it would not be unexpectedly, certainly in the western part of of the corn belt, to see maybe a colder than average spring. Even if it's dry, but it might be cold.
0: That's right, and you know temperatures always. You know what I mean farmers out there are always weighing risks right and there's all sorts of things that can go wrong at any point that you don't even think of but um you know if you're trying to get out there and and plant early that temperature thing is going to be the biggest thing for you out there in the east it's probably um it's probably the wetness uh issues and is that are you going to be able to get out there without much compaction or or uh you know any issues with getting muddy tires and tracks and, and uh, actually getting your equipment out into the field. So yeah, there's, there's several things out there, um, that, you know, cause us to be a little bit concerned here about the spring. But I think, you know, once we do get that, that crop in, um, uh, the probability there for, for a good year, pretty much everywhere is, is, uh, is, is pretty high. So I'm really optimistic, uh, that as long as, you know, the issues this spring aren't too harsh and too horrible, um, that uh, we'll end up with a good crop in the fall.
1: You know, one of the other things that, that I know uh, is a factor um, for farmers looking at temperature uh, over the course of the winter time is it, impact on... Um, soil borne pests, you know, insect populations and, and so forth. And I guess here locally in Iowa, I mean, yes, we've had some cold weather for sure, but uh, certainly, I guess, doesn't seem like we've had protracted periods of, of cold. Uh, what is, any, any input on that or what that has looked like in terms of the long-term you know, uh, temperature standpoint over the course of the winter?
0: Yeah, I mean, you, you hit that on the head there. I mean, anytime we've had the really cold blast, it's been really short. I mean, outside of the uh, around the Christmas holiday, I think we had more close to a five day stretch there. Um, uh, you know, we had another one here a couple weeks ago, but it was like a couple days. So, I mean, it's been really, really short, which is un- um, unlike what we would typically see for uh, La Nina, usually we see kind of uh, longer stretches of, of cold um, settling in. We did certainly uh, the two previous winters. Um, and, uh, you know, we we still have that potential, but we're running out of time for the real Arctic cold to, to settle in. Uh, what's kind of interesting is here, um, we still don't have too much of that for too many of us over the next, say, month. Um, the kind of... Arctic air is going to like to settle up across Western Canada and kind of the Pacific Northwest, maybe into the Dakotas, um, over the next month, but everywhere else it's going to be kind of, uh, in and out. So, um, you know, we, again, it looks like a lot of shorter stretches of, of any cold moving through, you know, a day or two of, of, you know, something that's Arctic in nature until we get to the end of March. And, you know, by the time we're hitting the end of march i mean a lot of our temperatures are, are well on the rise anyway so um you know an arctic blast might not feel actually that cold at the end of march or the beginning of april but you know getting you know single digit lows or something like that uh, certainly a possibility um uh, that that last half of march and possibly going into the beginning part of april everything kind of on a, on a time basis kind can, can shift around but there's a lot of things kind of setting up to to kind of signal us to have some better shots of some of that real arctic cold air uh for for a, a longer stretch there at the end of march but again you know w- when we talk about 30 degrees below normal that means something different in january than it does at the end of march so um uh, yeah. you always have to kind of weigh that as well
1: yeah so so if you're um, you know if you're Hoping that maybe you're going to get a little bit of uh, help from Mother Nature to kill off some of those soil-borne pests. Uh, this might not be uh, the ideal year for that because, like you said, we might still get some cold weather, colder than average weather. But of course, the average is going up. You know, as we get into March and, and April, so our chances of Correct. really, really cold weather are, are, you know, soon, soon behind us. Um, I'd like to shift gears and talk a little bit about. Uh, South America, you know, down there right now, they're getting ready to uh, harvest, you know, corn and soybean crop, Um, and they had their challenges as well, Uh, record dry uh, weather down there, I guess what uh, what do you see down there what's the what, what are the models indicating for South American weather
0: yeah and La has really played a factor in that so uh, typically during La Nina, uh, it's Argentina and southern Brazil getting some really hot and dry conditions and that has certainly been uh, the case here this year um, Argentina has just had just brutal stretches of, of extreme heat uh, you know five to ten day stretches of hundred degree plus weather. Um, and then, uh, every time a front comes through that would normally bring, you know, an inch or two of rain, it's been like a quarter inch to a half inch of rain, uh, or very spotty coverage with anything heavy. Uh, so there, I mean, if you, if you look at some of the, um, private estimates that are coming out with, uh, you know, kind of the USDA equivalent of good, good to excellent ratings, they're, they're kind of the lowest they've seen, um, I think in at least the last 15 years, uh, if not longer, um, uh, I haven't delved into kind of the history on that, but I mean, it's just been just to say it's just been really bad for those uh, folks down in Argentina and that far southern state of Brazil, which is called Rio Grande do Sul. Have been kind of just just terrible conditions for trying to grow crops. Now, of course, they're they're really close to the equator, and so their their um, uh, growing season is is really long. I mean, if, if you look at the far southern end of where they grow crops in um, Argentina, it's, it's the equivalent north as like Kansas. So, I mean, they don't get, uh, they have a really long growing period and, and, they really stretch it out. So they try to minimize their, uh, exposure to, to harsh weather conditions. Um, so they, they kind of plant for, uh, their planting season Race starts in September and, uh, they'll plant all the way through, uh, January. And so, um, you know, the, they, they kind of spread out their risk that way, but it's, it just hasn't been good no matter what side of it they've been on. Um, Brazil's been kind of the opposite, uh, especially the central part, which is the main production area. And they start off, they they could they double crop soybeans with corn and um, their soybean crop went in on time, um, which, which was kind of unusual. Um, they got some really good rains throughout the season and they're looking at a record crop uh, out of brazil as but they've been having real tough time trying to harvest that out uh with lots of heavy rain you know, they're in the midst of their rainy season so that's not completely unusual uh to have a bunch of rain at this time of year anyway it's just been a lot more and a lot Higher coverage and intensity than is, is typical, and so it's been really hard to get those soybeans out. And then, what they do is immediately following, and you, you might see some videos out of Brazil there where they've got their combines rolling through, and then right behind them, they have planters coming through for their Safrina corn. Um, and uh, as long as they can get that corn in by the third week of February. Um, they go through pollination on their corn before they hit their dry season. when The rain's basically immediately shut down, and uh, they're dry then until the next September. So um, it's really important for them to be planting on time, and uh, uh, they're behind right now. So there's some concern there over their corn crop. Uh, of course, you know we've got some really tight supply situations worldwide, and if we have any disruptions to that, um, that's going to send prices kind of through the roof so we are intensely watching what's going on down there in brazil and um you know they still have a week but the forecast down there is not looking good for them for trying to get out and do some field work there in central brazil
1: well and and you know obviously a lot of uh sea companies have some relationship with south america contra season production and so forth and i guess i was going to ask you um To my knowledge, it seems like, uh, again, a a similar pattern through the heart of uh, the South American growing area, similar to what we have been seeing here, um, which doesn't seem typical, or at least it it doesn't seem like we've seen quite such extreme dry, extreme heat uh, in both North America and South America at the same time. Or is that um, to be expected?
0: Uh, during La Niñas, yeah, that is actually expected. Um, you know, Brazil is is a little different because they don't have—they're so close to the equator—they don't have a summer and winter like we do here in North America. They have a wet season and a dry season instead. Like the the, the temperatures are always hovering around uh, the mid 80s to lower 90s all year long. So uh, temperatures aren't really a concern for them. It's just really how much water they get, and so we're not really um, concerned so much of, of the heat for them uh, unless it is is also coming with uh, periods of dryness. Um, and the interesting thing about their wet season there, especially in Brazil, uh, is that it typically shuts down kind of early May. Um, you know, there's some give and take in, with that uh, every year, but usually the first few days of May is, is average. Uh, during La Nina years, though, uh, even though we're coming out of it now, um typically that's a week or two earlier. So usually mid April is when they kind of start going uh, into their wet or into their dry season. Um, So again, that's another concern with this, this whole planting situation down there is if, if they plant late and their dry season comes early, they've got a really short window of time there uh, when the soil moisture is really good for development. If they can't get through um, pollination that really turns into a bad situation for them where they're, they're, you know, again, temperatures are 85 to 92 every day. Um, and if they don't get the rain, it could be a couple degrees higher than that. So, uh, the, the, heat stress really builds when that rain isn't there.
1: So, uh, you said here in North America, we're, you know, kind of expected to start to work our way out of this La Nina pattern, you know, over the course of the summer, and into the fall, um, would that same, uh, same timeline apply for South America as well?
0: Yep. So, I mean, the, the conditions in the Pacific are what they are. Um, uh, it just, again, it, it has a delayed effect on the atmosphere for about six weeks or so. Um, so, uh, you know, a lot of the, the Brazilian crop, um, is is still yet to be determined in terms of corn uh, but the Argentina crop is basically in the ground and it's and it's it's you know uh, toast if you want to say yeah use that term because uh, it's really hot and dry and, and and things don't really improve until probably May but that's beyond um, the normal life cycle of, of uh, corn and soybeans there in Argentina um, uh, again uh, you know it, it this the the crop cycle there in Brazil, um, really ends kind of in May too. So as we're trying to finally get out of it here and uh, things are looking up for uh, North America, it's going to take until next season then to have a detrimental effect down there in South America.
1: Yeah, and and I guess or I'm sorry,
0: coming back out of it and then improving instead of getting right, worse
1: right. Yeah, I was going to say neither neither good nor bad necessarily, but I guess we will be hoping to come out of this pattern in the middle of a growing season whereas in argentina there it would typically be kind of their off season that hopefully they will see their pattern start to uh normalize um and it, so i guess question i would have is in a broader sense we talk about you know uh, weather variability and of course climate change is is a popular topic these days and i guess i want to get your feedback on that i mean um we have obviously so many more tools and resources to uh do forecasting and modeling but i guess my question is in your opinion are is is weather getting less uh, less predictable um or is it just a result of these patterns these la nina patterns or el ninos or whatever we're dealing with at the time
0: yeah i don't think we're getting any um worse at predicting weather uh it's it, in fact quite the opposite you know uh, we used to do seasonal forecasting based on whims and, and uh, ideas. Uh, but, you know, computer models over the last decade especially, I mean, have, gotten s- have been so much more improved over where they were the decade prior. So, I mean, we can trust a lot of what goes on uh, in those computer models over, say, the course of the next five, six months. Whereas, you know, we were just kind of using them as kind of a research basis, um, you know. When I was back in school, like uh, uh, they, they, we just didn't have the computing power to to really uh, get a good grasp on on climate patterns and 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 things that were going on not only uh, across land but in the oceans and that's really where climate is driven uh, is in the oceans um and so we've gotten a lot better than with uh, satellite data uh, is a lot more dense now than it used to be uh models uh, can handle a lot more information than they used to um and so we've gotten a a, a much better picture of, of what's going on in the oceans, and that's really helped us uh, move forward in the, the predicting space. Now, the the flip side of that is you kind of mentioned that you know um, the the variability in the weather, and uh, it does seem to be increasing. The variability seems to be increasing. Um, say 50, 70 years ago, you'd see you know if you, if you're a farmer there in central Iowa, you'd see a three inch rainfall uh, maybe once a year. Uh, but now you're seeing them, you know. Multiple times a year, uh, and followed by stretches that are, seem to be at least longer than they used to be. Uh, so we're seeing a lot more variability in the weather. Uh, that's been documented and, and researched, and it, it seems to be occurring. Um, and so, you know, the the effects. Then, while we've gotten better at forecasting the weather, uh, or at least the climate, uh, several months in advance, um, getting the specific details of you know, how much rain is going to fall at what time and, uh, uh, you know, what's the actual temperature going to be on a given day. Um, it kind of balances itself out a bit. So, uh, we may have better ideas of what the patterns are going to be, but maybe not the specific details, but, um, you know, as, as time goes on, we'll get better and better at, at, uh, at getting that. I think the computing power will outweigh the, the change in climate, um, over the next decade or so, we'll get much better at getting that further out in advance.
1: Good. Well, yeah, and, and that's I guess was my root of my question was the variability that sometimes we see. You know, um, um, I think it was twenty twenty. When we first, at least I first heard about the word derecho, um, <laughs> and now we've heard it a couple of times, and I didn't know if that just sprang out of nowhere, or if, or you know, was is it a new phenomenon? I'm sure it's not brand new, uh, but it certainly was something very different than what we've seen before. Which kind of, I think is one of those things that leads people to think, are we seeing more extreme, uh, more extremes in the weather than maybe what we've seen in previous patterns?
0: Well, I think what we're seeing is is more um, awareness of those kinds of things. Like, yeah, derecho's have been around um, for as long as we've uh, been humans on the planet. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's not a new phenomenon at all. Uh, I think it gets a lot more play when it does, uh, when it makes a, a, a big uh, impact uh, in your community or in your lifestyle and you hear about it more often, um, you know, uh, uh I remember polar vortex when that started becoming a, a term. You know, Al Roker kind of brought, up, brought it up in the mid 2000s there, and um, that that term has really taken off and people talk about the polar vortex now well it's always been there it's just now it's getting a lot more attention you know with the the rise of social media and and the internet and everything um we're hearing a lot more of those those terms now than than we, pro- say, we probably did uh, beforehand so uh, we're just a lot, i think a lot more aware of what's going on now than than maybe we we
1: used to be yeah, and, and and the bomb cyclone probably fits in that right, category too. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um so th- sure, so talking I guess to to kind of wrap it up as we talk about the 2023 season, again, we know we're, we're you know, we've got so many more resources available to us, but at the end of the day, we know there's no guarantees, but um given the current modeling, you know, what would you advise? Growers here in the U.S., you know, in the in what I'd call the Corn Belt, corn-growing region, uh, to think about as they head into the 2023 planting season.
0: Well, I will never ever tell a farmer what to do with their plants, <laughs> uh, but I hopefully I can give them some information on maybe you know if if, if they may need to find some adjustments. So um, I think I think the biggest uh, uh, takeaway from what we're heading into is as long as you can get your seed to gr- into the ground at a, at a decent time. Uh, you're looking at a good, you're looking at a good crop this year. At least the probability of a good crop this year uh, is higher than uh, say the past couple of years. Now um, I think our planting challenges uh, may arise in several areas due to, uh, you know, different factors that we already talked about. uh, And that's my biggest concern. But as long as you can get into the ground, I think you're sitting pretty good here for this year.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Um, so I know you provide, uh, obviously, a lot of content to DTN and, and all of the entities in the DTN uh, family. I know you, looking at your uh, uh, speaking engagements, you talk to growers all over the place um, at different, uh, different meetings. So uh, for more information on, on the insights you have, they can, uh, I assume, find you online at, at DTN. Yep.
0: DTNPF.com. I have a blog space in there that I write every week, uh, at least once about the U.S. and and once about South America and anything else that comes up kind of globally. That's a little more interesting to talk about. Um, But yeah, um, you know, kind of coming up, I'll be down at uh, Commodity Classic in Orlando down there in in March. Um, Otherwise, yeah, you can find me at DTNPF.com.
1: Awesome. Well, John, uh, appreciate you uh, coming on the podcast and visiting with us. I, I th- thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Absolutely. Anytime you want to talk, David, it's been uh, great talking
1: with you. Thank you. Well, that's our time today. I want to thank our guests and our listeners for joining us on another episode of the Stein Seedcast. We'll be back again soon with more expert interviews and insights about all things Stein. And to never miss an episode... Subscribe to the Stein Seedcast wherever podcasts are found.
0: Subscribe to the Stein Seedcast wherever podcasts are found. To learn more about Stein and its elite corn and soybean genetics, visit
1: steinseed.com. Stein has yield.